made your choice a long time ago, Joker. No! You did this to me, and you condemned me to that asylum like some bastard child that you refused to take responsibility for! That's why you'll never kill me, Bats. You made me... Daddy! And criminal scum like you... made me... <laughs> edited for television, tonight's thriller contains scenes of suspense and violence which may be unsuitable for young viewers. Parental discretion is advised. My prior experience with Batman goes back to before I can remember. My older brother was the one who brought comic books into the house. He's seven years older than I am. Some of that obviously included Batman. And when I was a kid, Super Friends was in its first run, not in syndication yet. And you had Batman 66. I'm like not reading current comic books right now because of too many other things going on in my life. And I've had a few spells as an adult where I wasn't reading comic books. But Batman has been a part of my life for my entire life. When I put out the call, for this, the draw was definitely Batman. Yeah, I think most people our age and, I mean, who are into any kind of science fiction, there's some draw for Aliens and Predator too, but you know, that class of action science fiction movies, action slash horror slash science fiction, I'm interested in those things. I haven't been in the comic books like you and a lot of other people have, but I'm familiar with the material and I like it. I think it's accurate to say I've seen every Alien movie and I've never read an Alien comic book that did not have a DC superhero in it. I think that sums up my experience with the Aliens franchise. Oh, and my wife dearly loves the first two Alien movies, so she can she can talk through those movies in quotes. That's some of the things we talk about in my house that my, my children don't know what I'm saying. Go into a little bit more detail. Were you there for the first Alien movie? That's one I experienced down the line. I saw Aliens before I saw Alien. And it's funny because they're clearly two very different movies in tone and in what they're trying to do, and yet still, to me, very believably in the same universe. But I thought they were both both very successful in what they were trying to do. The first one being the horror movie and famously Jaws in space, and the next one being really this action horror flick. The second one was theatrically. My brother was in Navy ROTC at the time, and during they have a summer training cycle where they were spending time with the Marine Corps so they could decide whether or not they wanted to be Marine Corps officers. And that was when Aliens came out, and the drill sergeant that was working with them loved the movie and thought it was a great representation of the Marine Corps. So he uh, he advised them all to go see it. And you have military background as well. Did that movie influence you in any way? It was pretty much an inevitability from jump. I had lots of family members with military background, some good experiences, some no bad experiences other than the natural ones, the ones you would expect to be bad. But the main thing was my dad spent 20 years in and, and he it was clear that he just had a really good time. So when I got old enough, you know, every, every young man wants to do something important and do something bigger than himself and feel like he's changing the world, even if it's only for for ego reasons. But in addition to serving my country, like I said, he just looked like he had fun, like an adventure. I think that everybody's military experience is different. And I think that everybody's got a movie that reflects what they went through. What, what is your military movie? Oh my gosh. Two friends of mine, a military couple, the, the guy's military, when The Covenant came out in the theaters, they went to go see it. And they were so excited about it and saw 
so many parallels. They felt like they had to call me on the way home, and they did, and just were gushing about it. Now, the thing is, that's about a Special Forces senior NCO. I was not that, but I was in Afghanistan, and I had strong bonding experiences with my interpreter. I'll just say that. So some of it's that. I'll have to think about that and maybe come back to you sometime with an answer, because I have seen things that paralleled my, my experiences and everything from stuff like that to literally Steve Martin's Sergeant Bilko. <laughs> Solicitation copy from Dark Horse Presents, number 101 reads, Editor Bob Shrek continues to mix it up in Dark Horse Presents, the greatest anthology on the market. Where else could you find one of the most talented macabre artists of the century, drawing one of the coolest monsters of film and comics? Bernie writes and teams up with Red Hot Spider-Man author Ron Mars for a two-part alien story. This is the finest pen and ink work you're likely to see this year, and the creepiest interpretation of the big bugs in a long time. Story synopsis audio excerpts derived from Alien Theory. There's also, like, a second from Comics 101. The story of Batman Aliens begins in space, on a ship manned by an unknown alien species who have acquired xenomorph specimens, not realizing the dangers of what they've brought with them, resulting in a crash of the ship in a jungle near the Guatemala-Mexico border. At this site, a geologist working for Wayne Tech, Abel Barrett, was surveying copper deposits and discovered the crash. He soon uncovered the horrors that the ship left behind. In his final moments, Barrett spoke into a tape recorder, trying to make sense of what he'd seen. I know at least what they looked like. Not all that different from us, really. I can't even guess at anything more than that. What were they like? Pacifists or warriors? Explorers? I can't tell you. I don't believe they knew they had it aboard. I mean, they couldn't have, right? One of them stumbled across it, probably, and didn't know what it was. Not until too late, anyway. You have to realize that I'm guessing about most of this, trying to piece together from what I've seen here. But even if I've got half of it right, only half, can you imagine what that means? I came down here for soil samples, for dirt, and I end up holding some kind of alien in my hands. Damn it. I want to see my wife again. I think... I think I'm running out of time. It's hard to concentrate, but you need to know this. As much as I can tell. I'm fairly certain it didn't kill them. Not all of them. Not right away. It took at least one for breeding stock. Dark Horse Presents number 101 was released on September 28, 1995, debuting the two-parter Aliens Incubation with a pair of covers by story artist Bernie Wrightson. It was written by Ron Mars, and the issue was the 10th best-selling Dark Horse title of the month. It was bested by the usual Star Wars titles, plus ghosts in and out of shells, and the final part of the species adaptation. It also underperformed compared to the multi-part Dark Horse Presents number 100 celebration, with five issues ranking between 127th and 147th place. That said, number 101 is effectively number 106 because of the gimmick, and settled in the low end of the stunt sales at 144th place, selling a fifth as well as that month's Batman title. Solicitation copy from 102 reads, In this conclusion to the alien story, the extraterrestrial scientists from last issue become fodder for the big bug, and their ship crashes into an earth jungle. Notables Bernie Wrightson and Ron Mars turn in a fast-moving, suspenseful, and beautifully rendered tale of everyone's favorite exoskeleton carnivores. What was left of the crew tried to hunt them, I imagine, of course. You'd do the same, because you'd want to feel as though you had a chance, that you were doing something to save yourself. Maybe that makes the inevitable easier to accept. I wonder, did he pray? The last of them? I haven't prayed. Hadn't really occurred to me before now. What difference would it make? I don't believe in salvation anymore. Things I've seen. There's nowhere to hide. No place you can go to be safe from them. Such perfect engines of carnage. Cunning. Fearless. Powerful. There's horrific beauty in what they are. You dare not even wound one. What I saw in the cockpit is an indication. Everything scored by acid or something like it. A dying reflex. A ruined guidance system. Doesn't matter how the ship found its way here. I don't believe it was 
was intentional, just an accident. That's probably how they spread. Accidents. Coincidence. From world to world. Like seeds, scattered by the wind. And now they're here. We should be thankful, I suppose. What if it would come down in the middle of New York? Or London? What kind of massacre would that be? You, listening to me. That's what you have to understand. That's why I'm leaving this. They can't be allowed to spread. You have to make sure this is where it ends. I did what I could, but not enough. It's going to be over very soon for me. Down to my last flare. Survey charges are gone. Not that they did much good. You'll have to do better. Find some way of stopping them. Nothing else matters. Only stopping them. And if you're fortunate enough to survive this madness and get home again, I want you to do something for me. You owe me that, at least. Please, find my wife. Tell her I love her. And tell my little girl. Tell her. Dark Horse Presents number 102 arrived on October 12th, 1995, with a week recover and further removed from number 100. It slipped 22 spaces to 167th place, selling only 16.7% as well as Batman number 525. This was Dark Horse's 14th ranked title. The usual suspects joined by Tarzan vs. Predator at Earth's Core number 3, Madman Comics number 9, Godzilla number 5, The Mask Hunt for the Green October number 4, Grindle Cycle number 7, and Dirty Pair, Fatal But Not Serious number 4. Presumably the story was drafted as an unofficial prelude to Batman Aliens, and it was clearly much earlier in the production process, as there will be exactly 17 months to the day before the first issue ships. Did you read Batman Aliens when it first came out, the, the original miniseries? I did read the original when it first came out. I was actually a first lieutenant at the time, and it did not make me happy. <laughs> now I'm assuming you missed the prelude from Dark Horse Presents, right? That is correct. I didn't miss yeah. it. And I know in collected editions, they, they put it together with the, the core story, but clearly the majority of the people were buying the individual issues, the two-issue miniseries in the prestige format. The preview story is just the aliens interacting with an alien race that's not, you know, that's more basically humanoid. They're sort of like greys, alien greys, and yeah. showing the incubation process and the route by which the spaceship crash lands in South America. And much of the dialogue, because it's not a heavy dialogue story, there's a lot of captions where the person that Batman's coming down to investigate the disappearance of is sort of narrating his take on what he thinks happened based on his inspection of the site before he ultimately succumbs to an alien himself. And they actually take most of that dialogue and run it again in the story. So you sort of have already read that. Solicitation copy from Batman Aliens number one reads, he's seen many faces of terror from his watch over Gotham City. He's seen murderous clowns, strange creatures, and all forms of killer psychopaths. But he's never seen anything like this. Among the minds ruins of the Amazon forest. The dark night of Gotham is out of his element as he faces an intergalactic infestation of aliens. Four days passed after contact was lost with Barrett. Bruce Wayne became aware of his company's geologists going missing, also aware of the wife and daughter left to worry for him. As Bruce Wayne knew this, the Batman knew this. He embarked on a self-described mission of mercy, tracking Barrett down. It begins. An autopilot plane programmed to ditch in the Gulf delivers me to the Mexican-Guatemalan border. I drop lazily toward the teeming green hell below. A verdant shroud concealing dark secrets beneath. Yeah, the rendition of the jungle was interesting. The rendition of parachuting was very good. Kind of the exact opposite of the rendition of the weapons. So I appreciated that. One more thing I have to say about that splash page before I forget. It is one more complaint. And uh, and it's it, it's probably my chief complaint on the Batman side. Is he parachutes away from the Batplane. And he's just going to let the Batplane glide into the ocean. So first off, environmental damage. Second, that's got to be at least dozens 
dozens of millions of dollars. Even if you're Bruce Wayne, that's crazy. There's got to be a way to do that where you get the plane back. Let Robin give him a, a ride. Right. I mean, uh, Alfred's just going to be hanging out at the mansion at this point. Might as well help fly this thing, you know, back home or something. Yeah. Auto, auto, yeah. No. yeah. Well, also, and how are you going to fly the bat plane all the way from the eastern seaboard to South America? It doesn't look like it's got that kind of gas mileage. No, I, I agree. He's either got aerial refueling somewhere, which means that's a whole other goat rope to set up, or he's got some secret landing strip out where he can land a bat plane. When they show Batman flying somewhere and they show him flying in like some little private jet or flying in a C-130 that he rented and he's got some mercenary pilot, I always think that looks more realistic to me. Like this is just, this is just commuting. This is not the thing that you're Batman for. So just outsource it. Be a good businessman. Well, that, and I realized that we were between quality JLAs at this point and I don't think Batman was serving on any teams in this particular time period. Although since it goes into 97, by the time the book actually gets released, JLA started. But during production, we're dealing with the Justice League America, Extreme Justice, Justice League Task Force. So I guess he didn't have a league, but still I feel like Alien Spacecraft crashes is more of a JLA thing than a Batman thing. I don't think he knew Alien Spacecraft crashed at this point. And so when he makes his plan, all he knows is missing Wayne Tech guy. He really just needs a ride into the jungle. He probably thinks he's going to be dealing with some rebels who've taken him prisoner and and just haven't turned in the ransom demand yet. I have no understanding of the madness into which I descend. When he landed, Batman realized he was not alone. A covert ops team was nearby, close enough for one of them, Hyatt, to warn Batman of the approaching crocodile. Shots were fired, but Batman made a point to preserve its life, simply tying its jaws shut and sending it on its way, holding no grudge against the creature despite moments before it being out for his blood. Captain Seeley of the ops team didn't want to see the dangerous animal let loose and attempted to shoot it, much to Batman's objection. The croc was only following its nature. It never kills, just for pleasure. I don't know who you are or why you're here, but I have a job to do, and I won't have you in the way, so you're leaving. This was met with laughter from Captain Seeley. I think maybe you must be confused. Only mission round here is the one we're on, government sort of thing. You're in the middle of a restricted area, military law imposed, so when you think about it, you're doing the leaving, one way or the other. You're in the wrong place, man. You're out of your element. People who point guns at me come to regret it. Hyatt called for the two to stand back, becoming the voice of reason in this situation, requesting a truce of sorts. Look, like it or not, we're stuck with each other. Our team's on a covert op. We don't allow civilians to know about missions like this, much less stumble into the middle of them. Protocol says neutralize you, but circumstances being what they are, we could use the extra body. Our target site's northeast. So's mine. Seems like we'd just be getting in each other's way then, wouldn't we? My name's Hyatt. You're... Just who you think I am. Alright, Batman, do we have a working relationship? You ask as if there's any real choice. I'll allow you to accompany me, as long as you stay out of my way. I think we can live with that arrangement. Might as well get to know the rest. This is the dead man's hand. Government special forces. Exactly who we work for isn't your concern. That's Page, Gantry, Vanderpool, call him Van. And you've already had the pleasure of meeting Captain Seeley. We were sent here to find something, but Recon and Intel went to sleep on us. We shoot it in blind and hit the swamp. All our gear, radio equipment, most of our weapons, ammo, rations sank before we could get to it. What about you? Your gear come down somewhere around here? I'm carrying everything I need. Seeley cut the conversation short. Right, right, social time's over. We got at least five clicks to cover through heavy jungle 
and we're losing light. Let's move. There's some language in here where the writer Mars is trying to sound like tough guys normally sound or trying to make these tough guys sound like they normally sound. And it just comes across as kind of silly. He says, Recon and Intel went to sleep on us. What does that mean? Did they try jiggling the mouse? Satellite tracking finally got one right. right? So they have, it, it just, what, what's your problem with satellite tracking? Like from the very beginning, Captain Seeley tells Batman, protocol says to neutralize you. If they are truly military people, that's a violation of a law of armed conflict to just kill somebody who's not even, not even on the other side, not even going to report them and therefore an unlawful order. But if it were true, then he would have already done it instead of jawjacking with them. When most of their supplies sink in the swamp, does that sound like an actual military no. snafu or is that just comic book nonsense? So I will say yes and no. And what I mean is, has anybody ever done a parachute drop of supplies and had them sink into a swamp? We go, go off drop zone into a swamp. Yes, absolutely. It's happened. Would these guys who were supposed to be some kind of elite team, would it happen with them? I wouldn't expect so. And I sincerely hope not that that was, yeah, that was, I, that was on my list also. During their trek through the jungle, tensions continued to rise between Batman and Seeley. The two were at odds and even engaged in a physical confrontation when it was interrupted by a sight that shocked the group, something they'd never seen before. Massive, foreign, whatever it was, it came from space, crashed into the site of the Mayan ruins. Hyatt expressed her shock. It's here, an honest-to-goodness spacecraft, or what's left of one. Not one of ours, Seeley. Not Russian, either. And nobody else has the tech to get something like this into orbit. Doesn't leave too many other options. It's got to be the real deal. It's from out there. Damn. An alien spaceship and Batman, all in the same day, used Seeley. They investigated the craft, Seeley calling on his team to stay sharp. Okay, boys and girls, let's have us a little look around and see if anybody's home. A gunshot and a scream sounded from further within the craft. The shot and the scream came from Vanderpool. The rest rushed to his aid, seeing that he and Gantry had discovered one of the ship's inhabitants. It was an alien, bound by some sort of secreted resin, an empty, opened egg in front of it, a hole in its chest, and a fresh new one in its head, courtesy of Van, who was still startled by the discovery. Oh, these guys talk constantly. When they're in the jungle and they know someone's after them, they still talk constantly and they bicker. And if a team's been working together for a while, they don't have to talk. They just know what each other are going to do. A personal beef as, as a Christian, the, the guy who is ranting the 23rd Psalm and constantly reading the Bible and, and not getting anything out of that. Like they're portraying him as being a person of faith, but his faith doesn't seem to be doing him any good and making him, um, you know, giving him any comfort or encouragement and, and making him able to operate any better. So that wasn't, that, that for me, that was a, a little demoralizing. Book of Prayers, I didn't know what they mean by that. Was he talking about the Anglican Book of Prayer? That's weird. We're camped next to a downed spaceship, inside of which we find five alien bodies. Two, with their chests exploded. A trail of blood was found, leading into the ruins. Blood, Batman observed, more than likely human. More than likely pages. His gun's over there in the undergrowth. I have to assume he was carried away, because his tracks were joined by something else, like nothing I've ever encountered before. The group traveled into the ruins, finding not Page, but the body of Abel Barrett, Wayne Tech's geologist. It was apparent he suffered the same fate as the small alien beings they discovered earlier. It was apparent there was a threat among them. Batman and Healy continue to discuss over what exactly this mysterious threat was, whilst Hyatt discovered something of note. 
keeping it to herself. Barrett's tape recorder, containing his final words and observances of the xenomorph. Deeper into the ruins, the group cautiously searched for any signs of Paige. It had been some time since his disappearance, and they seemed to be no closer to finding him. Then a weak voice called Vanderpool's name. It was Paige, bound like the others, and struggling to speak. Noticing the hashtag nearby, it was evident to Batman that Paige had been victim to the facehugger embryo implantation, just like the others, and it was very likely he was now carrying the deadly parasite inside of him. Batman was determined to help Paige, and prevent the inevitable birthing of the monster, convinced he could remove it somehow. But Captain Healy had other, more practical plans, delivering a headshot to Paige and putting him out of his misery. Had to be done, he announced. Murderer! Batman shouted as he lunged for Seeley, grabbing his throat. He was dead already, Healy reasoned, as Gantry and Van tried to hold the bat back, and Hyatt tried to calm everyone down. Stop it, both of you. What's done is done. We've got enough problems without fighting each other. Batman stared Seeley down. You killed that man. In cold blood, Seeley. Not the first time, Seeley said. Paige was a casualty the minute that thing got inside him. I know it, and so do you. I'm just the one who admitted it. I said we take care of our own. What that means now is we save ourselves. We're getting out of here, and we'll do it faster without carrying baggage like Paige. You don't need to be a detective to figure something's down here with us. I want to be gone before it finds us. A tail came down and grabbed Seeley. Hissing aliens loomed over the captain as he frantically fired his weapon, until gaining composure and firing straight into the mouth of one of the beasts. A mistake. The acid blood erupted from the wound, burning Seeley's face. Panic and confusion hit the group. Batman restrained one of the creatures as it approached Hyatt, pulling it away with a batarang, though the Dark Knight's strength could not hold it back for too long. Gantry, having fired wildly and without conservation, stared into the hissing alien as his weapon made its last desperate clicks, and Gantry made his last desperate prayers before the hideous creature sent him to meet his maker. Van, meanwhile, steadied his fire, but he could not bring down the xenomorph before him, catching acid spray in his arm. Just as the Dark Knight flew in to take it on face to face, even holding off the attack of the alien's inner jaw, grabbing it with both hands. Seely, weakened and burned, got the attention of the horde of aliens with gunfire and taunts, leading them to advance upon him as he pulled out a grenade. As the rest fled, Seely set it off, taking one of the bastards with him. Batman, Hyatt, and Vanderpool remained, surviving the debris caused by the blast. They took a moment to assess their current situations. Our supplies are nil, and Vanderpool is going to need more complete medical attention than I can give. Those creatures have been in the ruin complex for days, at the very minimum. They don't appear to be intelligent in any conventional sense of the term, but they're cunning. They've had time to familiarize themselves with the passageways. It's only a matter of time before they find a way to get to us. During this time, the crocodile that Batman spared from the gunfire of the ops team had released itself from the rope binding its mouth closed and swam closer to the complex. A journey to the shore nearby led to the discovery of another egg from the doomed alien ship. It had not been opened, not until a host had approached it. A large reptile moved in for a closer look. From Mike's Amazing World of Comics, Batman Aliens number one was released on March 12, 1997. It ranked 29th in unit sales for Diamond Comic Distributors and Heroes World Distribution via Comicron.com. The top-selling book of the month was Superman number 123, the debut of the Electric Blue Superman. That was a $1.95 comic, so notably, the $4.95 Batman vs. Aliens was the second best-selling comic in dollars. The eponymous Batman issue of that month ranked 34th in sales, 46th in dollars. It was followed in 36th place for units by the second best-selling Dark Horse comic of the month, the Sin City Sex and Violence One-Shot by Frank Miller. That was followed by a couple of Star Wars reprint comics. In Dark Horse 5th place was Aliens Pig One-Shot. In 29th 
123rd place. So clearly Batman was the more important part of the sales equation than the Aliens. Despite being a reprint, Dark Horse Classics, Aliens vs Predator number 1, at 227th place, was well above the only new Predator comic of the month, Kindred number 4, at 157th place, with 17,608 copies sold. By comparison, Batman vs Aliens number 1 sold 73,763 copies. Indicative of the downturn of the industry and declining interest in AVP crossovers, both Batman vs Predator and Aliens vs Predator sold hundreds of thousands of copies. Tell me what you didn't like about the story. What upset you so much about it? Uh, the short version, and I can I can go line by line on this if you want, but the short version is just that this was a terrible representation of a special operations unit in a lot of practical ways, but also personality ways and most especially their competence. They acted like new recruits, not like special operations veterans. You know, I wasn't a tabbed guy or anything, but I've been supporting special operations people for a long time. I very much know the community, even though I'm not a full-fledged member. I even told somebody that I work with that I was going to do this podcast and he's Army Special Forces and how the way I remembered this, I remembered the, the character Hyatt's ambition. You're asking why I do this? Ambition. I'm the first and only woman on any U.S. covert ops team. I do it because it's the sort of thing that gets you noticed, moves you up the ladder. I'm going to be a woman with power someday. I wanted that ever since I was a little girl. I'll do whatever it takes to get me there. And how she was willing to turn her back on some of her teammates. And it's not like there's never been a bad special operator morally or even competence wise and even there have been bad teams but the idea that somebody would out of ambition for something that's going to happen when you're out of the jungle betray other team members was crazy he's like well, the way he put it was they're totally underestimating the power of fear like you would not <laughs> you know you depend on each other way too much because you have to and especially when she decides at the very end to conk batman on the head it's like yeah. if you if you have a get out of jail free card it's the batman and you're trying to screw him over and you think that's going to work out for you. The, just the extraordinary naivete makes you think this person could have never gotten into the position in the first place. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and like I said, I can go. So the, the only one who seems to have any kind of real physical courage is Captain Seeley. And when I say physical courage, I mean the ability to be afraid and keep working and keep doing the things that you need to get done. That is a thing that you develop with practice. By the time you're in an elite special operations unit that you would send into the jungle in an unknown situation where there's an alien ship. And by the way, you're only sending five people. That's crazy too. I mean, I would send at least a dozen. You know, a special forces team is 12 and I'd probably have some support strap hangers on that too. But by the time you put people in that position, they can keep working through just about anything. I would bet you even weirdness that they hadn't seen before. Doesn't mean they're not rattled on some level, but they have the ability to put it in a box and deal with it later. I didn't see any of that from any of them. Now, one theory that I have read about is that these are not legit government operators, that these are mercenaries just masquerading. Do you, have you had any experience with mercenaries? Do you think that that's a plausible explanation for what a mess this crew is? Maybe. I've known a couple mercenaries who were both prior military. One of them was a guy that I had worked with on active duty, like when we were both active duty. They're both highly competent people. Now, I have had people who have more experience with mercenaries tell me it's totally a mixed bag. But if you're some government outfit that's sending people into 
the jungle to an un- wading into uncertainty, as some of the special operators like to say. And, and this is a lot of uncertainty they're wading into. Why would you send the gang that couldn't shoot straight? I mean, literally, the one of them can't shoot a monkey out of a tree that's 25 yards away. So any other beef? I want to get to a point where I'm telling you things I actually liked because there were a few things I liked. But yeah, let me go through. So people who are concerned about their ambitions after they're out of the jungle while they're still in the jungle and under threat. And I kind of already talked about that. Oh, gear. And this is a very like Sergeant Rock letter writer in the 1970s thing to mention. But the gear they were carrying didn't look like any actual gear. And it's a comic book. You can make things up if you want, and that's fine. But they were using guns and grenades that did the things that regular guns and grenades do. Why wouldn't you use actual guns and grenades? That just seemed odd. I have a list of good things too. I'm probably happy to go negative. This is not the Find Your Joy Network. And, <laughs> and, I, and I like getting this perspective because while I've had military guys on the show in the past, I guess, depending on the story, I guess it's we've never actually gone that deep into the military aspects of the franchise. So this is all very interesting to me. I like this different flavor that you're bringing to it. Uh, if you have more you want to go in either direction, positive or negative, feel free. I'm kind of just kicking back and letting you do stuff until there's something I need to jump in on. What I will okay. say though, before you do that, is yeah. as a non-military person, just reading a story, it was so obvious that this was a bunch of types. And we talk about people like Rob Liefeld, who obviously learned to draw from looking at other comic books and why that's a problem. Because if you only draw comic book things, then you never learn how to draw a car or a jacket, or as you say, guns and grenades that look like actual guns and grenades. But it feels like these are a bunch of people that have been in other war movies and you're getting like a very facile take on character types and they're just really unlikable characters. So even if they weren't obvious and derivative, you just don't like them. And if the goal is to get you to root for their demise, fine. But that's not how we need to enjoy the story any. And Batman swaggering and being a jerk to them doesn't make either group look particularly good. And so I I was really sick of all the toxic environment that both sides were were manifesting. And also as far as the, the woman betraying everybody else, she telegraphed that so obviously so early on that there wasn't even any fun in a twist or anything. It was like, oh my God, everybody knew that something like that was going to come because it was just an, another lazy writer thing. It's weird. I, I don't feel like Mars was terribly invested in this story. And if he was, then he did not do a very good job of demonstrating that. Okay. Yeah, I agree with all of that. I think the Hyatt, the woman's telegraphing her ambition, it's true. And But at the time, I remember in 97, that almost felt required, like obligatory. Someone has to try and exploit the alien because of what happened in the first two aliens movies she was the one to do it but i guess you were just waiting for somebody to decide to that that Um, box had to be checked and we've got our little list of things to go through okay well that's in all the movies let's do this let's do this let's do this this was like a copy of a copy what i mean is you know in the in the the resolution goes down we we talked about the predator franchise and and its links with the alien franchise so this was ron mars's impression of the team from predator but not as good or as entertaining or as likable as the team from Predator. The only reason I cared about whether or not these guys lived or died was because they were fellow human. That's the only thing they had going for them. Like, you know, okay, we are the same species. I really want more connection with my protagonist than that. Everything they are, everything they do is designed to propagate their species. And everything he does is designed to protect life, especially human life. Deep in the Amazon jungles, the two will collide. Human against inhuman, man against beast, bad man against alien. Don't miss this exciting, pounding conclusion as the Dark Knight detective confronts the ultimate horror. Batman led his fellow survivors deeper into the structure, discovering ancient Mayan hieroglyphics. They describe a secret place of religious importance, a cavern, grotto. There's some kind of sacrificial area, something about fire. I can't make out. From the darkness, the alien stalker emerged, frightening Vanderpool
cool stiff, unable to fire upon it. Batman warded the beast off with his torch and held it back as Hyatt attempted to take it down, while the other specimen made its appearance from above, entangling her with its tail. Ordering Van to stand clear and freeing Hyatt from the alien's grasp, Batman, equipped with his own grenade, managed to destroy one of the aliens as he and Hyatt took cover. The collapse of one of the ancient statues staved back the other, but not killing it, only separating it from the entrance of the temple and their survivors now inside. With no time to spare, Batman urged the group to move forward. Let's go. If I interpreted the hieroglyphics correctly, the room we just left was a preparation area for sacrificial ceremonies. We should be getting close to our way out. I'll destroy the remaining alien once I've gotten you to safety. Something this deadly can't be allowed to escape, or fall into the wrong hands. It might be best to level the whole site with an airstrike. Vanderpool was very agreeable to this notion, though Hyatt had no opinion to voice on the matter. They were getting close. Their path led to an exit leading out of the stone giant Mayan's head, across a subterranean waterfall to a massive set of stairs, with steps leading, as the flight of the bat suggested, to a way out, a stairway to salvation. Batman left the pair behind to secure a line to the exit, climbing, swimming, and swinging to ensure a safe path for the surviving humans. Van, don't move. Hyatt whispered, shocked at the sight behind him. The remaining specimen had tracked down its prey. It grabbed Vanderpool. He writhed in its clutches, pleading for Hyatt to take a shot. Hyatt aimed her weapon, upwards, away from Van and the alien, firing above her and letting the monster take him. Batman, having heard the gunshots, raced back to his fellow survivors, finding Hyatt alone, who informed him of Vanderpool's fate. The two made it to the top of the steps leading to the exit above them, bats still flying through the caverns, leading the way out. We're standing on a capped lava tube. It might even still be active under the crust. The altar was used for blood sacrifices. I'm certain the hole in the cavern ceiling leads to the surface. He threw up the batarang, securing the line for the upcoming climb. A strike of Hyatt's weapon took Batman to the back of the head. He tumbled down the ancient stairway, falling to the ground by the water. Hyatt made her way down, meaning Batman with the 45 aimed directly at his face. He looked up to Hyatt, beginning to piece together the treachery. She pulled out the tape recorder and began playing Barrett's words for Batman. I picked it up next to your dead geologist. It's all here. Everything the aliens are. Everything they could be. Bioweapons, Batman. The future of warfare. Just point them in the right direction and turn them loose. Once I realized what we'd stumbled into, the rest of the team became expendable. You too, now that you've provided me with a means of escape, will come back with reinforcements. Capture the live one. There are rewards for delivering this kind of weapon for the people I work for. You have no idea how far this will take me. She steadied her weapon and prepared to snuff out the bat, but swiftly and without warning came an interruption. From the water and onto the shore of the stone staircase ascent emerged the result of the crocodile's embryo implantation. A giant, vicious specimen, born from the aggressive semi-aquatic creature, quickly advanced upon them. It effortlessly grabbed Hyatt as the precious audio tape fell from her hands, the gun still equipped, struggling to aim at a potential weak spot. Batman tried to pull her away from the grasp of the massive alien, but to no avail. Firing wildly, opening its jaws, the alien shot out an equally giant second set, piercing through Hyatt's torso, nearly ripping her in half, but instead leaving a perfect bloody hole intact, tossing aside the female soldier like an old rag doll, leaving her in a pool of her own blood. Batman, clutching Barrett's tape recorder, dodged the advances of the beast which now turned its fury towards him. He searched for a weapon. Scattered about were ancient swords and spears left behind from the ancient civilization held by its statues. He swung the serrated sword at the creature, a good, clean swipe, spilling its acidic blood. But it barely flinched. The acid 
burning through the stone, revealed the lava underneath. The solution and key to victory dawned upon Batman. Make it bleed. It moved in for the kill, but the bat endured, avoiding the same gruesome death that befell Hyatt. He grabbed the spear, puncturing the beast through the chest, right at its heart, if it did indeed have one. The earth-shaking roar of the wounded alien indicated that, at the very least, it felt pain, and it continued to bleed. It bled enough to burn through the altar further, stone crumbling and falling into the lava below. This was his chance. He grabbed at the rope leading to the opening, hanging from above as the stone from beneath gave way, submerging the alien into the sacrificial pit of lava, roaring and screeching and flailing within the pool of death. The alien was subdued, sinking and burning within its grave. Batman looked down to confirm. The beast was dead and gone. Without even a moment to process this, a tail from the cave ceiling above flung out from the darkness and snagged at Batman's neck, choking him, the final specimen. It brought Batman in closer, snapping its jaws at the exhausted hero who could just barely avoid the attacks. Then, old friends from the pitch of black appeared. A colony of bats, hissing and swooping out of the opening, gave enough of a distraction to the alien to allow Batman to harness it with a separate rope dangling below. Severed by the alien's own blind urge to attack, the rest of the rope and the alien long with it, fell into the lava, assisted by a final kick from Batman. Along with his winged brethren, Batman climbed to the surface. The remaining xenomorph specimens were destroyed, the spacecraft putting it to the torch and waiting for its fuel, whatever it might have been, to combust into a bright second dawn. The explosion obliterated the ship, the bodies, the entire ruined complex, everything. Such a waste. So much could have been learned from the ship, but how long could I have kept something so massive from the Shadow Man? No. Let the ones who sent Hyatt and Seeley and the others wonder what happened. They'll never stitch together anything close to the truth. In two days, I made my way through the jungle to the coast, to a fishing village in Belize. From there, I contacted Alfred and arranged for a pickup in Belize City. Seven hours later, I was back in Gotham. Barrett was right. Destroying them was the only option. The alien physiology is far too dangerous for anyone to possess. But not because of what they are, because of what we are. Reflecting on his experiences, intent on delivering Barrett's final message to his family, Batman throws all remaining evidence of the xenomorph into the depths of the Batcave, leaving the possibility of weaponization far behind. Batman vs. Aliens number 2 dropped 14 slots to 43rd in sales, seemingly enough to drop to 52nd in dollars. But at a glance, I think Comicron might need to recheck the math. Reported units sold were 64,934, so there's nearly 9,000 in-sale number 1s never to be made with the second half. I think if you have just number 1, you should throw it in the recycling bin as an act of mercy. Issue number 2 is still easily Dark Horse's best-selling title, followed by Star Wars, A New Hope's Special Edition number 4 in 76th place, X-Wing Rogue Squadron, Requiem for Rogue number 1 right after, the reprint Classic Star Wars, Han Solo at Star's End number 2, and Predator Hell in Hot Water number 1 in 127th place. By this point, Dark Horse Presents number 120 was all the way back at 204th place, so the creative team maybe helped more than I was giving them credit for. So I do want to talk about, because I do want to give credit, Bernie Wrightson did the art on this, and Bernie Wrightson, he's been amazing for decades. For his entire professional career, he was amazing. So the art was impressive. Not the best inking job I've ever seen for Bernie Wrightson, but still looked good. There were a few good lines when Batman says that they're up against something he hasn't encountered before, and Hyatt takes note of that and says something he hasn't encountered before. To emphasize it to everybody else, I actually laughed. That was a good line. I disagree with you a little bit about Batman, and it might be comparative. And what I mean is, in 1997, there were versions of Batman where he acted like more of a jerk than this. This was actually 
actually, to me, like medium level Batman. I would like him to be a little bit nicer than this. I'm for Marshall Rogers and Steve Englehart Batman, but this was tolerable. This was okay. And he was so much smarter and so much friendlier. And friendly is not the right word. So much more willing to work together, so much more cooperative than Captain Seely was. He came off well in the comparison. Yeah, that's that's the thing with me with Batman, too, is as they made him more of a jerk, I'm just, you know, just, uh, no sense in belaboring it. He was just a big old jerk. I lost interest in Batman as a character. I just was no longer committed to the character. My interest started to wane with Nightfall. And so this would have been the period around like Contagion, No Man's Land, where he's doing yeah. stuff like insisting that the JLA don't go into Gotham when it's a shambles. I have no time for that particular version of Batman. I, I'm like you. I want my Bob Haney, Jim Aparo. That's my Batman. And this other guy that came along later on, I just don't have an interest in. He has been worse than he is in this book. He's still bad enough to where it turns me off entirely. How are you on Batman and in, in Batman and the Outsiders? I'm curious. I did not take to Batman and the Outsiders. I'm definitely a hater of that book. I, I tried to read it a number of times. Enormous artistic resources were funneled into that book and those yep. characters. I did not appreciate that Brave and the Bold had to die for that to be born. But I do generally like Mike W. Barr's take on Batman, even though there were some problematic elements to his interpretation. And I do think that he influenced later writers in much the same way that Frank Miller did, that he doesn't get as much credit for. But I think that Barr could take it to a line where I could still like the character. And it was only later on that they went past that. But I like Barr's. In particular, one of my favorite Batman stories, because it was one of the ones that got to me early on, was Barr's annual with Trevor Von Eden, Messiah of the Sun, or whatever it was called. Mm -hmm. Glorious artwork. And like I bought, Joe Casey did a a book for Image called Annual and all they did was take the trade dress and elements from the cover and I still had to buy the book just because of my affection for that one story. <laughs> yeah, I understand. My opinion's a little bit different from yours. So I like Mike W. Barr's Batman in a lot of things. In The Outsiders, he was a toxic leader to the team. My problem with that was it doesn't produce a good effect. It wasn't smart and I can't always count on Batman to be good, but I can count on him to be smart and or I should be able to. So some of the things he did to that team were not only like hard to watch because they were unpleasant, but they were dumb. And, th and that was what got to me. It's pretty much the same thing. Like, I get that he's angry. It's understandable that he's angry. He's seeing people do horrible things. I get that he feels like he has to be a hard man to protect people. And that's all fine. But when you cross over into counterproductive, I have a, like you, I have a problem. Well, I also take it within a spectrum is Batman's been this way for 30 odd years now at this point. This is who Batman is now. And we've seen that in movies and television everything else. But you also see that while he can be a, a, a bit of a douche in a lot of these programs, he can only take it so far with the JLA because of the JLA. Not only will yes. they check him, but they're just so good that there's only so much you can complain about. Ultimately, I think it just makes the outsiders look like they're so incompetent that he has to micromanage them in a way that even the JLI didn't need to be micromanaged. So I think ultimately, Batman, because he is the iconic character that he is, it can't help but just make them look so terrible that he has to be that way toward them. I, while definitely the toxicity is there, a lot of it just feels like, wow, these guys must really not know what they're doing if he has to be this rough on them. Yeah, which, I mean, and I guess that reminds me a little bit of its contemporary, the New Teen Titans, where I remember people asking the question of how can Robin be this hardcore, uber-competent leader in the Titans and be the kid who keeps screwing up over in Batman? I didn't have a problem with that. I could look at my older brother, who was about Dick Grayson's age at the time, and compared to a lot of his contemporaries, 
series, he was that uber competent. And with my dad, he was always going to be the screw up. Maybe you're right. It's just a matter of who he was working with. Again, there were problems with the dynamic between Batman and Robin that could cut play into that. But also when Robin's leading a team, he knows that he's responsible for all those lives. And suddenly he Batmans up. Where when he's hanging out with Batman, he can kind of coast a little bit. It's not going to be his responsibility if something happens when he's on an adventure with Batman. It's ultimately always going to be Batman's responsibility. And he will make sure to tell you that. So that can also have an impact. I think sometimes it's your environment, who you're with, and what you can get away with, what you can't get away with. When he's the leader, he's got to make sure these people come out of it well. He, he's capable of more than Batman would allow him to be when they work together. Yeah, I, I think both those points were not only valid, but they were in play. And the other thing is that you're going to look like a screw up in front of the guy who still sees you as 12. Some of that, that's what's happening with my older brother and my dad, too, you know, and all these things. So, yeah, I think those are all valid dynamics. He could just simply be shook. He can be his optimal self without Batman. But when he's with Batman, he's hesitating. He's overthinking. He's trying to compensate. He's trying, you know, there, there's a whole bunch of that can go into play with that. He grew up with this guy. You know, it's going to screw you up in some ways. <laughs> yeah, and you're always performing in front of him. So yeah, you're, 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 the listeners can't see me nodding, but I'm nodding. When I'm looking at the, the initial story, because it's only like six to eight pages, it, and then over two months, it's like 12 pages total, right? And I can see that Bernie's drawing aliens for whom there is no model. And then he's drawing the Geiger aliens, which is very much in his wheelhouse as a horror artist. And he's doing some yeah. spaceship stuff and a lot of shadows. I think you can see a, a much greater enthusiasm in Wrightson's work in the short story than in the actual book. I think that he was enjoying himself when he was doing a horror story. And then when he had to do a Batman paramilitary story, it suffers. Plus, it's just a lot of pages from a guy who really wasn't putting out as much work by that point in his career, who was already getting up there. He's middle-aged himself, at least. But also, I think that in, in both cases, in Ron Mars's case and in Bernie Wrightson's, it's 1996, 1997. They're, they're working on it as far back as like 95. And the, the industry has collapsed. And I feel like maybe they got on this not so much because they were in love with the concept of this mashup, but as a life buoy, as something that would be guaranteed a certain amount of sales so they could expect a certain amount of commission royalty and survive in an environment that was increasingly hostile to creators. Yeah, that all makes sense. And I don't want to criticize Bernie Wrightson too much when my heart is still warmed by some of those old Swamp things. So the rendition of all the Xenomorphs is outstanding, especially when he would do big panels. Like there's one that surprises Vanderpool and then there's the Xeno Croc and both of those are very impressive. DC got what they paid for they, and, and what the what they expected from Bernie Wrightson. And my understanding is it was actually Dark Horse who paid for that. So it's funny because oh, really? both of those okay. creators were associated with DC Comics, but it was actually Dark Horse Comics that paid them, which is probably part of the reason why you had the preview story in Dark Horse Presents. Now, yeah. one thing that we do on the show sometimes, when I remember, it was started by Derek William Crabb, but he references Ryan Daly where he likes to pick a page from the book. If you could have one page from the story, which one would be yours? And for me, it's the final splash page in the Dark Horse Presents series where it's an alien descending upon one of the humanoid aliens and, and grabbing it. Just because I, for me, it's the best rendition of Xenomorphs within the story and it's outstanding. Obviously the cover is fantastic too. I use that image to promote the podcast when we were first starting it. So of course I would love to have to cover most, but I typically just exclude covers from the competition. It'd be that final splash page from the first part. Is there a particular page within the main miniseries that you would like to have if, if the opportunity presented itself? Yeah, and, and this is going to sound like heresy because it's Batman 
aliens. This would be the splash that doesn't have an alien in it, but it's the opening splash where Batman is parachuting down. Because like I said, they get the parachuting right and the jungle looks gorgeous and it just looks cool. It would, it would actually be something you'd hang on your wall. I do have to ask though, why is there not a bat safari variant going into this mission? Of all those action figures that we've seen over the years, why isn't there a jungle action Batman on this particular mission? I think that's a great point. They did that with action figures so much more. When they actually showed him having a variant costume in the comics, it was hugely exciting. I remember one Batman comic where he was going to be fighting in the snow and all he did was put on a white cowl and cape and like that was a big deal. It was a simple change. But I guess if you're trying to make something that's a commercial product, you want to be as on model as possible or everybody's going to complain that the one time Batman fought the aliens, he was wearing that stupid toy costume. I think I was too cheesy or childish a nerd. I never complained about him wearing a different costume and I, I never heard anybody complain about that. But I can imagine like if you said if these guys were trying to do something that would be a paycheck and, you know, they wanted to do a professional job, but it wasn't something they were super interested in. Maybe at that point, you don't take the time to design a new Batman costume. One thing that's funny to me, though, is that several years prior to this, they had done Batman versus Predator. And I, it wasn't until I started doing this podcast that I realized just what a seminal book that was, how many people who came into comics in the late 80s and 90s gravitated that specific book. It was on the newsstand. It was multiple editions. It was trading cards. And you have Batman in a variant costume in that. And I think that the fanboys seem to have loved that. So the, it seemed like almost a missed opportunity in this on this occasion. Yeah, I agree. So I'm really happy you did the heavy lifting for me because I was dreading coming into this book and having somebody that loved it to pieces and for me to just say it's it's pretty dumb and pretty underwhelming at, at, in the grand scheme of things. I mostly like it for the artwork. Like you, I have a history with Bernie Wrightson. I still enjoy his work. He's really good at drawing the aliens. Not so much the, the other people, particularly the, the lady who looks very matronly and that's something he, he kind of <laughs> had a tendency toward, especially in his later years. I could do without the croc alien, but also I know that's part of the shtick at this point, so whatever. But uh, yeah, I, yeah, I didn't love this book. I'm not going to revisit it. I agree. I think I looked at the Xeno croc pretty much the same way that I would have looked at a variant costume on Batman. The novelty of it is exciting. I could have done without the whole Mayan ruin thing, too. I feel like the, it was maybe even written for it to all take place on the ship, which makes the most sense. And Wrightson was like, I'd really like to draw some Mayan ruins. And so they just sort of like converted it to, to allow him to draw that instead. I feel like that was just an artist's request kind of thing as, as opposed to anything that makes any logical sense. Just so happens that the alien spacecraft has the land near enough to an uncovered or, 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 or secret Mayan ruin with traps and all this other kind of stuff to liven things up. Yeah, and I think there are a lot of stories, especially from this time period, that I remember, I mean, like, I wasn't a kid when I read this. I was a young man, but even then, there's a phase in my life where I think I believe there must be, like, secret Mayan and Aztec and Inca ruins around every corner. Like, there, there's got to be vast stretches of this jungle that nobody's ever looked too deeply in because <laughs> because it seems like they did come up a lot. But, you know, if Bernie Wrightson wants to draw a Mayan temple, let him draw a Mayan temple. You know, I, I want to see a Bernie Wrightson Mayan temple. That's fine. And dramatic, yes, but let's throw the face hugger down a hole is probably not the best way to make sure nobody ever gets a hold of one of those things. Yeah, no, if I remember correctly, this was years before this Batman story. But if you go back to pre-crisis, I think Superman had a thing in the, he basically had a super incinerator in the Fortress of Solitude. Anything you dropped in there was gone. And that's where I would have put that thing. An acid bath, anything but drop it down a big hole. Yeah, something where it is broken down to its constituent parts. One thing that's a total nerd thing that I'm the only person that this ever bothers, the satellite in geostationary orbit over Gotham. You cannot have a satellite over geostationary orbit 
over any point that isn't on the equator. That's not the way orbits work. They have to cut through the center of the Earth and cut the Earth in half, basically. Ever since I learned that, it makes the old satellite era JLA, there's just one thing nagging at me when I read it. There's some purple prose in the first one that Ron Mars does, and I'm old enough to remember the 70s when Denny O'Neill or Roy Thomas or somebody would have these long captions of loving descriptions of the scenery or whatever. I don't mind that, and I was actually pretty impressed. I thought he did a good job. Yeah, it's kind of nice because you got a artist most associated with 70s comics drawing this thing, so that sort of florid style seems to suit his work. Yeah, yeah, it was like it was like Swamp Thing's narration. Yeah, I could see Linwood doing one of these. <laughs> that would that would have been awesome. <laughs> I, I'm sure he would have had fun with it for sure. The compilation of Incubus and Batman Aliens was released on November 19th, 1997. It was the 10th best-selling back of that month, and at 14.95 was ninth in dollars. It was the third Batman title on that list, well after Batman and Superman Adventures World's Finest at number one, second in dollars at 6.95. So it must have sold many times as well, given it was less than half the price. Batman Prodigal was just ahead of Aliens. The miniseries did not rank among the top 100 comics of that year. Licitation copy for Batman Aliens 2 reads: A Gotham City construction crew uncovers a sealed vault housing an unspeakable horror. 80 years ago, an expedition to the South Pole uncovered a crash spaceship, a spaceship containing the bloodthirsty aliens. Now, after years in hibernation, a nearly desiccated alien is unleashed upon the modern world, and it's very, very hungry. Only one man has a chance of stopping this murderous beast, Dark Knight detective known as Batman. Story synopsis derived from Wikipedia, because Xenopedia barely covers the first issue with some incorrect details. In 1927, an explorer discovered something frozen in the ice in Antarctica, and he brought it home to Gotham City. In the present day, a construction crew breaks open the basement of a derelict building and find the explorer's remains. Realizing that he sealed himself inside his lab with what killed him, the alien slaughters the construction workers, then escapes into the city. After a desperate struggle throughout Gotham, Batman is able to briefly defeat the alien, find its nest, and arrange for three victims to have the embryos extracted before they can hatch. Batman Aliens 2, number 1, was released on December 26, 2002, the 76th best-selling comic of the month. The hefty $5.95 cover price lifted the dollar sales ranking to 23rd place, with 26,986 copies reported as sold. The Jim Lee Illustrated Batman number 610 was third place for the month. Batman Aliens 2 number 1 was the 11th place Batman family title. I note this because DC Comics officially shouldered the production of this miniseries, employing former Robin and Batman artist Stuart Staz Johnson. Amusingly, both Ron Mars and Bernie Wrightson were closely associated with DC but DC reached out to frequent Dark Horse Aliens Predator writer Ian Edgington as their writer for the book. All right, well, we'll move on to Batman Aliens 2. Not a lot of imagination in this one. It's a little, throws me off a little bit too because they've got the TWO between the two logos. Actually, they're, they're just fonts. You know, Aliens kind of gets a logo. Batman is stuck with the font. But I keep wanting to see that Batman Aliens 2 is issue two. Instead, it's Batman Aliens 2, number one of three. Were you around for this one when it was coming out? I was not around for this one. Or maybe... Actually, I think I was still reading comics, at least not so much Dark Horse, but still reading Batman comics by this point. But because of my bad experience with the first one, I didn't pick this one up. But yeah, I see what you're saying about the cover. It is confusing. It doesn't help because I, I went ahead and bought the hard copies of these issues. It doesn't help that the one of three, two of three, and three of three on the cover 
covers are a pretty tiny font in comparison. That and also it's like a deep purple you know, on a black cover. So it, it yeah. doesn't exactly pop. Yeah, it's like it, Lego Batman designed it. He only worked in black and very dark gray. Yeah, and see, for the first two-parter, I still was running a comic shop and it sold fairly well, apparently. I really didn't remember it, you know, doing all that well in my own shop. I ordered it, it sold, I didn't have any problems with it, but it basically slipped my mind once it came and went. I had already was done with retailing by the time this book came out, so I don't have any experience with this. I didn't put seat on the shelf because I probably wasn't even going into comic book shops at this time period because once I had had my own shop, the last thing I wanted to do is go into somebody else's on a regular basis. Um, <laughs> and I think that the sales seem to reflect that because it's a pretty steep dive from the first volume to the second volume. And this is after the market had kind of picked up around 2000, 2001, after a, a long period of decline, you started to see the market start to come back a little bit. I don't think that this book should have sold as poorly as it did, uh, given those circumstances. But I think that maybe there was a lack of interest in the mashups by that point. You know, there'd been so many crossovers in the late 90s, especially, that the novelty had probably worn off. I don't know that the creators were necessarily big draws either. I don't think either Ian Edgington or Staz Johnson have the name value to really bring the kids to the yard. Now, you probably had some experience with Staz Johnson on Batman Family Titles, though, right? Were you still collecting Batman stuff at then? Yeah, I was. And it's funny that you say that because the name didn't didn't jump out at me. And I mean, maybe it's just because Johnson as a name is, is, is fairly common. But so the art does look familiar. I'm sure I read him, but I guess I didn't take note of him at the time. I was actually pretty happy with the art in this book. It doesn't have the horror feel that Bernie Wrightson does, but he definitely came across as a competent Batman artist. So you can see the experience. I always had two problems with him. One, his name was Staz, and I just couldn't take that seriously. And two, he's the guy who had to follow Tom Grummet and Mike Wieringo on Robin. He's the guy who had to follow right. Jim Balin on Catwoman. And th that's not an enviable position to be in. So I, I tend to, you know, he was never a big fan favorite, but I gotta agree with you. I think the art on this one is surprisingly good. Uh, and he's tasked with drawing some pretty complicated stuff. And I think he does a really good job of it. I think that this is probably, uh, as far as, because I recall looking at his stuff throughout all those years when he was doing Batman Family stuff. And I really feel like he leveled up here. I think he put in a lot of effort knowing that this would be a high visibility book. And I, I think this is probably toward the tail end of his career too, because I don't recall what else he did beyond this point. So it's a shame he didn't get to do more because looking at the stuff today, it's it's really impressive. Yeah, I agree. And honestly, the storytelling might be a little better than some of the scenes in uh, in the first volume. The only part where it gets confusing is toward the end when they're on the oil rig. And it's because they're in such close spaces that you it, it's hard to tell exactly what they're doing without really going back and looking at it again. But like you said, there's a lot of complicated stuff in here. There are a lot of complicated things happening and it was still pretty easy to follow. Yeah, I think that you can see a bit too. Like Staz Johnson is not Bernie Wrightson, but you're also talking about Wrightson to some degree phoning it in where this guy I think is doing his best possible effort and I do think it shows and it, the enthusiasm is infectious. Yeah, I agree. Now, what do we think about this story though? Because it's a little weird. It, it, it's, a, it's rather Lovecraftian, which you could definitely see as a lateral move from Geiger and, and what Dan O'Bannon was doing, but it's like really, like literally very Lovecraftian where you've got secret societies dating back to the 20s and eugenics and all this other kind of stuff. And we have to deal with one thing that I know is a, a real pet peeve for a lot of aliens people, 
people, aliens on Earth, having been on Earth for decades, undetected or largely undetected. How did that work for you? I, honestly, I thought all that was great. It was, I mean, it was fascinating and in, in kind of a, a pulp fiction, not the movie, but actual pulp fiction, pulpy story kind of way. And I eat up all those tropes of you want to have a secret society in the 20s and people who belong to a weird cult and end up meeting up with aliens and oh there's a discovery at, you know out of the arctic or the antarctic or whatever i thought that was all good and, and maybe mainly the reason i enjoyed it so much was because it was not a cookie cutter alien story tell me this too the first batman aliens is it more of a batman story or more of an alien story and then how does that compare with this one wow that's a great question because it, it is very much an alien story in that the the xenomorphs are hunting these guys right and it almost feels a little like the original predator because they should be hunting them back and it's it's that kind of team or at least a parody of that kind of team but batman is so prominent in it i almost want to say it's 50 50 but it's still but it's a little bit more batman the xenomorphs suffer because they never get dialogue people always talk about how the joker when he's in a batman comics tends to steal the show well if you want batman to to have all the cool lines put him up against a mute villain feels somewhat like the first miniseries favors the aliens just because batman is so far out of his own element and because of all the paramilitary stuff and it feels like they, it's like batman almost having to bend over backwards to fit into an alien story where here this is very much batman's turf batman supporting cast familiar locations dream sequence where the aliens get all of his supporting cast impregnated with chest bursters it's funny because the person who's writing it has some of the most extensive history in writing aliens comics and it, it's totally a batman comic that just happens to have aliens in it for me well and that's probably why staz johnson was the right guy to do it i, I mean it, and and why it seems to work so well is because this looks like an early 2000s batman comic so it just feels feels very comfortable reading this and it's like the 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 alien involvement throws you off a little bit but it doesn't throw you off as 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 much as it would if you didn't have all those touchstones batman doesn't immediately reach out for buddies and at this point he's very much a part of the magnificent seven plus you know quite a few more about 15 i think at this point jl he doesn't immediately reach out for those people, but also probably it's much less of an extinction level event on DC Earth than it would be on any other Earth. So I can kind of see where he's like, well, let me handle this on my own for now. I try to turn off the part of my brain that would say, why Why would you not call Superman or the Martian Manhunter or Zatanna or whatever at this point? Because I know Kurt Busiek has written about this. Sometimes you just want chocolate cake and that's Batman. And sometimes you want marble cake and sometimes you want cake of what layer cake of four different flavors. And that's Justice League. But I know that the reason he doesn't call them is because they want to write a Batman story and that's fine and I'll you know I'll just accept it and press the I believe button synopsis for issue number two a black ops government agency has taken over the aliens case but there's still at least one very fierce very hungry alien on the loose in Gotham City can Batman stop it from wrecking havoc in Arkham Asylum Batman insists that the alien embryos be destroyed but instead they are confiscated by Dr. Fortune an army scientist ignoring Batman's warnings Federal Emergency Medical Authority. I'm okay with DC making up government agencies. Sometimes they have to do that. They live in a different world where it would make sense that they would have alien-influenced medicine and things like that. It bothers me a little bit when they have the same acronym as an actual government agency. I would have questions about government medical authorities showing up with handguns. That was odd. The adult xenomorph drone burst into the hospital room, reclaimed the newborn chestbursters, which wrapped around the drone's body. Batman chased the drone across rooftops, but it escaped. We learned that the man behind the expedition in the 20s was an HP Lovecraft type who allowed most of the expedition to perish in pursuit of what he believed was a way to reach a more primeval, godlike
Xenomorph-like version of men from ancient times through the Xenomorphs, it is also determined that Dr. Fortune and her agents are not really with the government but using highly sophisticated cover identities. It was weird to see Barbara put in a halter top and basically portrayed as cheesecake. Not that she isn't always portrayed as, as attractive, but this was pretty blatantly cheesecake, uh, so it was just odd. Later, the now-adult aliens attack Arkham Asylum, which was at first defended by a shotgun-wielding Two-Face. The scene where he has to team up with Harvey Dent and they're going through Arkham Asylum and they've done all kinds of damage to Arkham and it's like Batman and crazy Arkham people on the same side because we are all at least human beings. I thought that was kind of cool. Batman disarms him, then is able to fight the aliens off using Mr. Freeze's gun and a suit of powered armor. But he is subsequently captured by Fortune, awakening on Fortune's base on a disused oil rig. Batman Aliens 2, number 2, was very slightly and debatably belated by a week, arriving February 5th, 2003. It dropped 16 places to 92nd, but again, 27th place in dollars. Reported sales were 23,976 copies, so only a third of the disparity between the two issues from 97. The ongoing Jeff Loeb, Jim Lee hush story pushed Batman back to the top book of the month on the Dark Horse front. Ghost in the Shell 2, Man Machine Interface number 2, was their top title in 79th place, followed by Star Wars Empire number 5, then Batman Aliens, Hellboy Weird Tales number 1, and Star Wars Republic number 50. But getting back to Batman vs. Predator and Batman Aliens 1, where is my acid retardant Batman suit specifically made for this occasion? Where is my Bat God Morrison suit? Yeah, well, I mean, he has a suit in this. He pulls something out. You're right. We we need the action figure, but we got the suit and it was pretty cool. I, I thought it looked like the early version of the suit he fights Superman with in Dark Knight Returns. So I thought that was a nice touch. They looked kind of thematically connected. So what do we think about 20th century medical practice being able to safely extract chest bursters from multiple victims without any consequences seemingly. Well, I don't know, because I can't remember, how is that portrayed in the Aliens movies and, and the Aliens comics? Is that something where it's like, oh yeah, I crawled in and we can extract it like somebody who swallowed a spoon? Or is it something where they immediately wrap themselves around the spine or something? If you look at Prometheus, you've got the extraction of a different type of alien, you know, like maybe a predecessor to this alien, and that's done successfully. Right. And then they the uh, Whaling yutani or whatever the modern equivalent of them was promising Ripley they could do that in Alien 3 but I don't think we've ever seen it actually successfully done in any Alien movie so far. If, uh, I'm standing to be corrected but I don't recall it happening. I, I think they really what they were really trying to do is limit the body count because this is a Batman book and it's okay for pe for some people to die in Batman but you don't need the body count to be so high that it's, it's depressing. It is remarkable how much more gory this one is than the first miniseries from just a few years earlier. Yeah, that's true but maybe that's the difference of Johnson trying to compensate for the fact that he's not a horror guy. Wrightson can just make things spooky with the way he draws them. And, it, you know, he can give tone. Like, his trees are spooky. Maybe Johnson felt like he needed the gore. Dating myself here, but what I'm flashing back to is the Saturday Night Live where Phil Hartman was playing Frank Sinatra, trying to sell Luther Campbell, played by Rick Chris Rock, on his innate talent. And yes. uh, uh, he keeps saying, no, 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 basically I have to curse. I have to do this stuff. I don't have any talent. He's like, no, you're selling yourself short, son. It's like, no, 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 really, I, I have to do this. This is the only way I'm going to make any money. I, I love that bit. Don't do blue. It's not bread and butter, man. So the station copy from number three. The thrilling conclusion of the three-issue prestige format 
series. Batman's been imprisoned in a secret government base, but even if he escapes to face his mysterious abductor, he'll have to battle a fearsome cadre of super soldiers, biologically engineered from the DNA of captured aliens and Arkham's most notorious psychopaths. Batman finds himself confronted by alien-human hybrids created from DNA samples extracted from the Arkham inmates Joker, Two-Face, Scarecrow, Mr. Freeze, and Poison Ivy. Fortune has already tested their abilities against special forces operatives from all major nations. Despite the odds against him, Batman is able to defeat the hybrids by using his knowledge of the original aliens' abilities and the emotional foibles of their human donors, allowing him to trap them all in an area of the rig after he triggers an explosion. Confronting Fortune, Batman learns that she plans to use the alien supervillain hybrids to keep the superheroes in check. As various governments fear what will happen if the superheroes ever go rogue, Fortune also reveals that she was a member of the original Explorers expedition in 1927 and has been host to an alien queen embryo since then. A form of dry leprosy she contracted before being implanted prevented the queen from hatching while allowing her to use some of its abilities and extending her lifespan. She believes that she can successfully harness the Arkham inmates' extraordinary abilities for her hybrids without their insanity and that the hybrids' alien natures make them naturally loyal to her as the queen. However, when she reveals her latest hybrid created with DNA from Killer Croc, Batman warns her that Croc is already too animalistic and vicious to feel any loyalty towards her. She defies his warning by standing before the hybrid and trying to issue a command to it. It responds by tearing her head off. I liked Batman's portrayal here. He was portrayed as driven, not psychotic. Probably more agreeable than he was portrayed in the first miniseries, but he was also, with the exception of the evil alien hybrid lady, he was also dealing with more agreeable people for the most part. So yeah, Dr. Fortune, she describes the people backing her as a cabal. If they describe themselves as a cabal, they're definitely not good guys. That's a red flag. Batman escapes the rig after triggering an explosion that destroys the platform and all the remaining hybrids. He reflects that he will have to watch his step, as Fortune was being backed by some very powerful, influential people, though Batman has no idea who they might be. There's some quibbling with numbers that comes with the final issue. Batman Aliens 2 number 3 was released on March 5th, 2003, but there are sales numbers in both February and March. It was initially ranked 275th place with 2,123 copies sold, which perhaps accounts for advanced reorders, which would indicate increasing interest. In March, it placed 93rd, just one slot down, and 25th in dollars, a two-spot increase. Reported sales were 22,262, down just 1,714 copies. But for the 2,123 from February weren't counted in that number, it actually gained from issue to issue. The collection was released on August 6, 2003, ranking 19th in trade paperbacks and 31st in dollars at a price of $14.95, selling 2,534 copies in the direct market. I did have a couple other thoughts about this thing. It was interesting to me that the first miniseries could have been any time in Batman's career. I mean, it was was just, it, it was like a fill-in issue you could have had, had on the shelf for 10 years. There was nothing that connected it to any particular time frame in Batman's life. He didn't come out of the, the Wayne Foundation Batcave or something like that. The second one was very firmly in the DC continuity of the time. You, you literally see uh, Wexler, the ventriloquist, and his sock puppet, which was a thing that happened at the time where they took away his dummy and he had to make a new dummy out of a sock puppet. And I don't know how long that lasted, but it wasn't forever. And they were they were that on the moment. So that was interesting. They had they showed a headline about the aftermath of Superman's death. Same thing, different topic. So what do we think about a second hyper, a type female pretending to be a government agent inserting herself into the story? So I thought that was 
very comic booky, and that wasn't a bad thing. I was totally fine with it. It was one of those things that made it more of a Batman story because it was one of the things I would have expected to see in a comic book at the time. And I thought it was interesting how they did it, where it's like, she, so she had a dry leprosy, which I guess is some variant of leprosy, or had some exposure to it, and that killed, put into stasis, the chest burster, so that, and it somehow merged with her. It doesn't really seem plausible, but it's way more plausible than a radioactive spider, so I just wasn't going to beat him up on that. And it made her an interesting villain that was different from just the unthinking aliens that you normally see in an alien story, which are scary enough. Unthinking's too strong. You know, they're primarily operating on instinct. Well, you referenced Kurt Busiek earlier, and what I'm reminded of, I think he was the one during the time of JLA Avengers who came up with the idea that DC Earth is just physically larger than Marvel Earth and is able to contain more cities and more countries because it's just a bigger version of, of the Earth that Marvel has. Uh, mm-hmm. I feel like we have to afford that this is DC Earth and therefore you've got a lot more exposure to alien races and their scientists are able to deal with this more effectively. That as you mentioned, that uh, having an alien impregnated within you and not having it burst out will give you superhuman strength and allow you to live for decades longer than you're supposed to. It's like, this is comic book Earth. That's just how it's going to work here. And I, I do know that some of the aliens guys took a real interest in the whole dry leprosy thing and sort of took that to heart. I think that maybe that was a mistaken notion though because this is only effective on DC Earth. I don't think this is applicable to the rest of the franchise. It'd be interesting to see the rest of the franchise play with it, right? So if you have this effectively alien-human hybrid, what if what if that person became someone who hunted down the aliens? Because what, what it makes me think of is Blade, right? So, so what you're talking about is a, a daywalker xenomorph. Well, except in this case, they're pro-alien to such a degree that no one has ever been pro-alien, except for maybe the guys in Alien Resurrection who were crafting all those different ones out of the Ripley remains. So for instance, we have Team Alien made up of hybrids with Arkham Asylum inmates. I I think that this is either a deal maker or a deal breaker for a lot of people reading this story. What side of the fence do you fall on? I'm on the deal breaker side. This was my worst part because there were just too many leaps. If you're gonna combine alien DNA with somebody, why do you pick these guys? And I get it, it's before their traumas. But first off, the first studies started showing in like 98, I think, that trauma actually impacts our DNA. It doesn't change the sequence, but it changes when things turn on and off. So there is an impact on, like even our, you know, our our kids have some impact from our trauma that happened prior to their conception. And I would think that would affect these clones too, or these hybrid clones. So that's one thing. The other thing is like, we don't know what their tendencies were. If Joker was like he said he was in The Killing Joke, if he was a failed comic, you know, with deaths in the family or whatever, and he just had a really bad day, and then that turned him into the Joker, somebody else having those same experiences would not have turned into a psychotic mass murderer. So I just don't think this is the genetic material I would have wanted to work with. And controllability, I mean, Batman brings it up in the first series, right? He tells Hyatt these folks wouldn't be controllable. And I can tell you, that is the priority. You have to teach people to be violent, and you have to teach them to overcome a natural aversion to being violent to other human beings, but you don't spend as much time on that in training as you do on making them be able to respond to instructions because in a combat environment, you have to know that they'll do what they need to do immediately because the person in charge of them maybe knows more about what's going on than they do. And you have to have some confidence that they won't cross lines and kill prisoners and things like that. I can't imagine, and and call me speciesist, but I can't imagine that I'm going to have that kind of confidence with somebody who's half alien. And see, I've heard the other side. I've heard people talk about how this uh, there's a lot of asks in this miniseries and that's part of the fun. It's a Batman comic, so you got to have Batman 
Batman villains. Everybody wants to see a Joker alien. There's a lot of asks and you either are for it or you're not. For me, watching an alien group of colonial marines in fatigues with human teeth speaking, I tap out. I'm, I'm happy for the people that are, are full of joy when they see that. But for me, I'm just like, okay, this, I'm out. I quit. I'm, I'm done with this. End it now. Yeah, I also, this is a weird rabbit trail to go down to. But like, what do these guys do in their daily life? The real colonial marines in Aliens, when they were off duty, they could go to Starbucks and hang out. They could watch movies in an actual movie theater. These guys aren't going anywhere. They're walking monsters as far as the public is concerned. So this is just a weird life to assign someone to. I previously covered a Ian Edgington alien story called Rogue, where he's like, oh, well, they have an alien queen. Well, what would a king be like? And now we've got what if the aliens were colonial marines and also Batman villains? And it's the sort of high concept where I get how you got to that place. Kudos for having the guts to, to try to exploit that. But what I keep going back to is the Nicolas Cage movie adaptation, where he's got a twin brother who wants to be a screenwriter. And he's got this idea of a person with multiple personality disorder. And two of the identities are chasing one another in the mind while riding horseback in a city. And it's just like, stop. You know, it's it, the whole point of the, the, the subplot is the, the ridiculousness of it and how people will buy in because of the ridiculousness of it. And I'm the guy who does not buy in. And, you know, I'm more the poorer for it, supposedly, but I, I just can't. I, I know it's a comic book. I know it's DC Earth. I'm not on board with this. I'm sorry. I quit. It's too many different ingredients. It's an ice cream pizza taco. All these things are great by themselves, but you didn't need to mix them up. And they could have done something close to that a little differently and made it a little less off-putting. Like if Hugo Strange had decided to combine the aliens with Arkham inmate DNA in order to make villains to fight Batman with, that at least makes sense. I will say this. I was in Harajuku. I saw a crate and it was a tuna pizza crate. And I ordered it specifically because it sounded like it was going to be absolutely disgusting. And I wanted to be able to say that I knew what such a thing tasted like. It was actually quite good. So sometimes you can pull it off. Not so much in this instance for me, but I'm glad for the people who enjoy it. But it looks like we're both wishing that this was not 48 pages, three issues, because it just kept pushing further and further until we fell off. Yeah, absolutely. I don't regret seeing it. I guess I kind of have the same attitude that you would have had if you'd had the tuna pizza crepe and it was awful. Like you still would, you wouldn't regret having tried it. Oh yeah, well, I've definitely regretted trying things that were particularly repulsive, but I drew that specifically to know that they have that experience, be able to share that experience with others. So I still find joy in it. I was really happy that it didn't suck. Yeah. It was kind of weird because the editor kind of like disappeared partway through at the beginning. And so I don't know whether he'd been let go or left and things. And I don't know if we fell between the cracks or what, but you know, I was, I was doing stuff and Staz, the artist, he went and got some of the work because we were just we were waiting and went. And then also we got this email of like, you know, where the, where the hell is the script? And he's like, who are you? Go, I'm the editor. It's like, oh, well, nice to meet you. Well, and so we suddenly had to jump back in and it was a real kind of like race to the, to the finish. It, it, I mean, it was fun to do and trying to fit it into the, the, the mythos. And I think the wheels get a bit wobbly towards the end. I'm not going to deny it because I think we were, it had been scheduled and we were in kind of like a race against time to kind of get it all done to a degree of decent satisfaction. But I mean, there's a lot of stuff in there I'm, I'm really pleased about. The stuff in the 1920s with the temple under the ice and things, like the Joker alien, where you know, it's the albino one. With it. And there's some nice bits in there. I was pleased with the way it would turn out, but I wish we'd had a bit more space, you know, a bit more breathing room to kind of not have to do things at such a mad pelt. It was, it, again, it, it was just meant to be like stupid fun and entertaining and things and so on. And I thought, you know, and the idea of like crossing the aliens over the Batman villains and things, and think, how, how can we do this? And, you know, Killer Croc seemed a natural, only the fact that he's already a Batman villain, because I, I know Ron Mars really well and stuff. So but I talked to him over and, and I think it's only because he, he's a Batman villain anyway. So yeah, but he 
just seemed a natural to do. And of course, they made toys, which was even more of a shock later on, which was great. It's like, wow, okay, it was good. I was surprised to see the um, the Temple Under the Ice crop up in the AVP movie. It's like, ah, oh, okay. A couple, a couple of people did get in touch going, did you, have you seen this? Did you? I went, no. I said, yeah, but it's not you know, that of an original idea. You know, it stems, goes back to like Lovecraft and all that kind of stuff. So I, I, I can't lay claim to it. Yeah, it's good fun. Once again, what's your page from this miniseries? Man, I have actually heard you do this before and I should have anticipated it, but I didn't. I'm flipping through the hard copies right now. All right, so I might have to give you two, one Batman and one alien. There's a scene in the first book that is a classic Batman on the bat line over the city splash. It's probably page 17 in, in number one. And again, no aliens in this one either, but it's awesome. And then in the last book, there is a scene in the infirmary and it's page 43. It's really pretty horrific, but it's got two panels with large aliens on it. It's just really well rendered xenomorphs and I appreciate it. And the xenomorph is getting shot and he's in pain. So it was pretty cool. What about you? For me, if I want Bernie Wrightson drawing Batman, it's probably going to be from the cult. That's why I'm looking for an alien from Bernie Wrightson. From this, I'm definitely going to focus on the alien here. There's two pages that are really, really close. One is page 16 from the first issue, which is where the seal has been broken on the underground room and the workers are looking into it and then the alien burst out at them. It's just a really nice shot of the alien. I really like the hands. Really great hand work. Obviously, hands are tough and alien's hands are even tougher and I think Staz just did an awesome job on that. The other, the competition is page 14 from issue 2, which is where the alien has killed the, I think the support of the of doctor, the bad doctor lady, and then it's climbing on the rooftops, and it has the chest bursters encircling its arms. There's just a novelty to that, because I don't think we'll ever see that anyplace else. It's not something I've never seen before. Plus, you've got the dripping blood coming off of the tail, which is nice. So it's super, super close. Ultimately, I'm going to go with the one from the first issue, but it, it was it, I had to really think about it to figure out which one I would have wanted more. They're both just knocked out of the park. Excellent work. Yeah, so so the, the one of your two that you didn't pick, what I appreciated about it is it's pretty good renditions of both the aliens and Batman. So that that's kind of, maybe my criteria should be something that really shows both of them well, since that's the point of the series. But yeah, good choices. And actually, one of the ones I picked, the one I said was in book three, was actually in book two. I did think of one more thing that was interesting to me about the series, which is how it ends and how, how Dr. Fortune dies, is it's just a classic hubris mistake. And you kind of see it coming, but it's really satisfying anyway that she screws up and the croc alien kills her. Well, specifically, this is not a continuation of the first one. This is the killer croc alien hybrid. And uh, yes. there's not enough DNA between them for her to uh, have any uh, connection, the sort of biological pheromonal thing that the aliens identify one another with. Plus, frankly, aliens from different tribes will turn on each other. So she just didn't know what she was dealing with there. And she she took the, the, the stake as a, as a result of that. There's also a, a rather large crocodile head opening up for a jackhammer that just completely obliterates her head. So, you know, they really sell that shot. Yeah, yeah. We read these things so that we see bad guys get their just desserts, right? That's not the whole thing. There's also escapism and power fantasy and drama and relationships and all these things. But part of it is seeing the good guys win because we don't see it often enough in real life. So, yeah, that, that was cool. Andrew R, BSG Old Driver 3000, Billet Spy Vinyl, Billy Hines, who added, I'm on here again, Talking Talking Cinema's Predator, Hashtag Ugly Motherfucker, Chris at Bad Books for Beginners, Chris Dunford, who added, Ooh, Clown Fucker Fridays, Comic Fan, Del Dracula, Derek WC of History of Comics on Film, Dirk Ashton, Ed Moore at Teal Productions, I Was Joe Is, Julia Raul, Keith G. Baker, Lamar the Revenger, Lorenzo Sleestack, Lucretia, Montalaya, 
Lunar, Mess Messy Mess, Myers Sr., Norbert Riab, Once Upon a Geek, Princess Allison Marie, Richard Field, Ryan Daly, Siskoid, Superbound, Talk Nerdy to Me, Talk TV, and Tie a Def Not Tie. This has been a Rolled Spine Podcast. All audio samples are believed covered under fair use laws. No copyright infringement is intended. Coming in February. Dark Horse presents Aliens Omnibus 4.